and welcome to the Glossy Beauty Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss the future of the beauty and wellness industries with the people who know them best. I'm your host, Priya Rao, beauty editor at Glossy. And today's guest is Larissa Jensen, executive director and beauty industry analyst at the NPD Group. In this episode, we talk to Larissa about the insurgence of digitally native beauty brands, how extreme transparency is influencing customers, and why flankers are driving sales in the fragrance market. Hope you enjoy the episode. Today on the Glossy Beauty Podcast, we have Larissa Jensen, the Executive Director and Beauty Industry Analyst at the NPD Group. Welcome, Larissa. Thank you, Pri. I'm so excited to be here. So, Larissa, give us a little bit of background. How did you first find yourself in the beauty space? Well, actually, it was total chance. Um, A headhunter had reached out to me while I was consulting for the Nine West Group, and they do shoes. That was really my background, was accessories and shoes. Um, So they approached me about an opportunity at L'Oreal. And once I discovered beauty, I was totally hooked. Um, I immediately fell in love with the industry, and I knew that this is where I wanted to stay. Did you find yourself being a very big beauty consumer prior to this? Interestingly, not so much. Just the basics. Um, I don't even think I had my first beauty makeover till I was in my early 20s. Um, That's kind of hard to admit, considering that it's my life right now. But uh, yeah, I definitely got into it a little bit late. So when you were at L'Oreal and then later at Estee Lauder um, at Bobby Brown and Prescriptives, you spent a lot of time in the marketing departments. Tell us a little bit about how those experiences really kind of informed what you do today. Yeah. So, you know, I held a variety of marketing roles that touched every beauty category across multiple companies, as you mentioned. So while this definitely provided me with a solid base of branding experience, I definitely hold a special place in my heart for the FIT master's program for layering on the industry knowledge and connections that I really still reap the benefits of today. And it actually led me to my opportunity with NPD. Um, As part of the capstone prep, NPD had come in to speak to my class and I was fascinated with everything that they had to say. So funny, I was actually hugely pregnant when I graduated, (laughs) and I had just given birth to my son when I went on an exploratory interview um, at MPD to learn more about the company. While there were no positions open at the time, six months later, I got a call directly from the president of NPD Beauty saying that there was an open role and they wanted me to apply. So interestingly, I had no market research background. So when I started at MPD, obviously, I came with a marketing mindset, which was definitely unique at the time, since most new hires were primarily market researchers. But it proved to be an advantage in understanding how to observe the market from the brand side, because it's not about what's up or down. It's about why. Because ultimately, understanding why something happens provides the insight into what drives the market forward. So it was definitely an exciting time when I started, because I now had an arsenal of point of sale and consumer data to tell that story. And it's still exciting, to be honest. My husband jokes that this is my ideal job because I'm the kind of person who likes to be in the know. (laughs) And with all this data, if I ever need to know anything about why something is happening, I have an amazing team that has all that information at their fingertips. So, Larissa, go back a little bit. You know, when you were in those roles at L'Oreal and Estee Lauder, you know, those marketing roles, were they really data focused? Were they as data focused as they are now? So my roles at 
um, Estee Lauder and L'Oreal were actually not data um, focused. So I didn't have a lot of that market research background, which is why I was so fascinated when NPD came in to speak to my um, class at FIT. Um, having the ability to see that information was just so interesting and new to me. And it fascinated me um, to be able to see the brands that I was working on. You know, wow, I didn't even realize that they were a top five brand. <laughs> so having that perspective, you know, I thought was something I wanted to explore, which is why I went and had that exploratory interview um, after the FIT program. When you started at NPD in 2005, the beauty industry was in a very different place than where it is today. Tell us about some of those kind of learnings and challenges and changes. So, it's going to date me. Um, but when I started in beauty over 20 years ago, Instagram was more than a decade away, and an apple was still a fruit to most people, right? Um, but by 2005, when I joined NPD, things had already begun to change. Um, but for many years, our industry, and specifically prestige beauty, remained pretty solidly in one place, meaning that big brands dominated big retailers dominated, and big product categories dominated. So if I had to think about the common thread that's driving the biggest change since 2005, it would be the impact of technology, the ability to purchase online, social media. I don't think that any of that is a surprise to anybody. But why did it change our industry? Because it put the power into the consumer's hands. So in the past, Consumer options to purchase beauty was very limited. And when I say limited, it really was because the products, brands, and stores that were around them were really the only places that they could purchase beauty. Most of the time, these were big brands and big retailers pushing their big, most profitable categories. The beauty ideal, product trends, formulas, they were all brand-driven. Technology and social media changed all of that. Here's just one example. Primers. Back in the early 2000s, brands decided to introduce this new product to consumers, educating them on why they needed an additional step in their makeup routine. Consumers reacted to the brand messaging. Fast forward 10 years. Kim Kardashian starts contouring and posting it all over Instagram. Consumers can't get enough of it. They begin to buy up the few contour products that are on the market, and then all of a sudden, every brand out there puts out a contour kit. So it flipped. Brands are now reacting to consumer demand, and we see this continue to play out beyond product to values today. So when we think about how the industry has changed, it's interesting because the industry has done a 360 since I worked on the brand side in many ways, but despite those differences, some things don't change at all. In the end, brands want to create great products that the consumer loves and comes back to. So, Larissa, as you mentioned, the industry has become a lot more reactive. Are you seeing any brands out there doing this particularly well? Yes. Yeah, so, really, the brands that are doing this the best are the younger brands, the more nimble brands, the ones that have really come into the marketplace being born in the world of social. So, within prestige beauty, you know, the dominant players are the same dominant players that have been around for the last 20 years. How do you think that they can become quicker or better at integrating this data that we're talking about and these trends? So, you know, these brands 
or these corporations that are the large ones. They're still there. They're still the big ones. Um, and they're still growing. So we know that the top five corporations, for example, um, collectively grew 1% in prestige last year. Um, but the total industry grew by six. And so when you think about what was driving the growth of the total industry, it was really corporations outside of the top five. Um, they grew by 14%. And so, you know, when you think about the volume that's coming into the market, um, the prestige beauty industry grows by about a billion dollars every year. And these corporations outside the top five um, actually brought in 960 million of that billion. So, you know, it really is about, you know, for these bigger companies, understanding, you know, how, where their competition is, who their competition is, and how to leverage the best practices. And I think that they're all doing that, which is why we do see growth. It's just not as rapid as we're seeing from some of the smaller players. Being small, it's easier to grow fast. So on that note, these smaller players, we're seeing so many come to market every day. There's a new brand on social every day. How do you kind of distill whether a brand is kind of worth the hype or going to be long lasting? So we do see a lot of these brands flooding the market and entering through, you know, online channels. And I think the challenge is that with all of that noise out there, how do you know which ones are the ones that are going to be the biggest impact? So um, NPD does have an innovation lab, and we're able to provide some sort of perspective into how these brands are doing, because really at this point there is no tracking service for them. And we're actually able to see how um, a lot of these, you know, some of these top digital native brands, while they're growing, we do see that the performance of these brands is pretty much in line with what we see in Prestige, about 6% growth. Um, but when you dig deeper and you look at specific brands within and how they're performing, it's obviously a very, some are growing triple digits, some are declining. But what's interesting is when we think about these digital native brands that really are, you know, changing the industry in a big way, while they are very unconventional, what we found is for the brands that had started to slow in their online sales, they actually took a very conventional approach by expanding into brick and mortar retailers. So Larissa, let's talk about that for a second. You know, a lot of these digitally native brands are going through an omni-channel um, revolution, if you will. Um, they are finding their place in brick and mortar with places like Sephora or Ulta or, you know, more innovative department stores like a Nordstrom. What are the keys to kind of succeeding in that realm? So omni-channel is not something that's widespread yet. Um, because when you think about omni-channel, it's about having that multi-channel approach. So every omni-channel um, strategy is multi-channel. But you can have brands that have a multi-channel approach but aren't omni-channel, if that makes sense. So omni-channel is about seamlessness. It's about being able to go from one platform to another. And so I don't believe that there are very many instances in beauty just yet. Um, I think Sephora is a great example of, you know, a retailer that's providing that omni-channel experience by 
being able to try products virtually online, keeping products within their cart. They could purchase it on mobile or online or in the store, um, and it's pretty seamless. So to me, I think it's still in its early stages um, because it's not an easy thing to integrate. When you think about some of these bigger retailers, you know, some of them are still structured um, in a way where the online team is different from the brick and mortar team. And that makes it a challenge to make it seamless. But we do see that there is a move towards that direction. And I think that um, omnichannel is definitely something that will be a part of our future. Um, so when you see a digital native going into a, you know, big beauty retailer, so you can use Kylie as an example, and um, her recent expansion into Ulta. So that's, you know, a great example of a brand looking to expand and grow. And while it is a brand that was traditionally um, strictly online, by making this move and going into the brick and mortar space, you know, it was beneficial in two ways. It was beneficial to Ulta to have this brand that was so hot, obviously. But it was also, you know, I think like there's been a lot of coverage about that, right? Ulta really, you know, got a great deal and they were able to get this this really hot brand into their into their stores. But on the flip side, I think that it was also a really great opportunity for Kylie as well in terms of getting that new exposure to other um, consumers that may not have been as familiar with her products um, because the Ulta consumer skews a little older than the Kylie shopper. What about kind of the limitations of those relationships? You know, a lot of these smaller brands, they may have a lot of data on their own hands in their own channels, but that data may not be being shared by the Sephora's, the Ulta's, obviously, the Amazon's of the world. So what are some of the kind of limitations in that regard? In the regard of what? Them not sharing the data? Yeah. Well, I mean, it leaves um, it leaves this black hole in the industry where people don't, you know, really know how these brands are performing. I think that's a big challenge because you don't have that bigger picture of the industry, which is why NPD started this innovation lab as a way of having that perspective and being able to bring some insight into what's happening with these brands. What about the idea that, you know, beauty is, you can find beauty anywhere these days and that you can find it obviously in CVS and Walgreens, you can find it on Amazon, you can find it in Urban Outfitters. We're dealing with a kind of overstored situation right now. Yep. What are your thoughts on that? So as a consumer, I think that the ability to buy beauty everywhere is awesome. It makes it like the world is your playground, right? So I think it enhances the experience for the consumer. The potential downside, however, is consumer fatigue. When there's so many brands, there's so many products out there, at what point do we get tired of all the options? Which may be why consumers are reacting so strongly to brands that align with their values, because in many ways it's easy to cut through the clutter that way. Oh, cruelty-free, all right, that's that brand here. Sustainable, that's that brand there. So being able to segment all of that product into um, into areas of interest um, or importance in your life makes it easier to navigate through all of that clutter. So from the perspective of the retailer, I think that being able to deliver on that for the consumer is what's going to help them win. 
We'll be right back. Subscribe to Glossy's Beauty and Wellness Briefing to get the top trends and insider insights in your inbox every week. This exclusive look at the beauty and wellness industries is meant to dig into the topics that really matter and shed light on the elephants in the room. Subscribe today at www.glossy.co slash beauty email. So on that note, with something like Clean at Sephora or Wellness at Nordstrom, you know, really going big and hard in these categories, is that kind of a self-editing for the consumer? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, think about going into a card store and no segmentation there. It's just a whole bunch of cards on a wall. I mean, what? <laughs> it's very confusing that way. So being able to um, pull that information together for the consumer makes it so much easier for the consumer to navigate. So if you have a consumer that is interested in wellness or natural brands, it it makes it so much simpler and, again, cuts through that clutter in terms of what are the brands that she should be considering. And and I think that, as I mentioned, retailers that deliver on that are gonna are going to be able to win in that in the marketplace. So how do you think that those are faring, you know, especially within clean and wellness and natural products? So we are able to segment um, in our data how the performance is of natural brands. And within natural brands, we break them out into three different areas. We look at nature-inspired brands. So these are brands that um, might have some natural ingredients in them, but also use um, synthetic ingredients as well. And then you have clean brands. These are brands that use harmless synthetics or not too bad for you ingredients. Um, and then there's also organic brand, organic brands and organic claimed brands. So when you look at the naturals market this way, um, Nature Inspired actually ends up being the largest in size. And it's growing. All of these areas of natural are growing. Everything's growing double digits. But really, it's clean that's growing the fastest. I believe it's 42%. So that mix of efficacious with natural. Well, it's not necessarily just natural. So that's what's interesting about clean. Clean is just products that are free of bad-for-you ingredients, right? So you know, one, of, one of the things that we say a lot to the industry when we go out and speak with brands is that you know, not every brand can be natural, but every brand can be clean. And it's interesting. It brings to mind a story of I was doing a presentation for an industry event. And after that event, I had a cosmetic chemist approach me. And, um, you know, it was about naturals and trends. And she said, um, I'm trying to think. So she said to me, we're having a problem with a particular ingredient that the consumer, you know, believes is bad for them. But in order for that to be ingredient to be bad for them, it needs to be X percent. And we only use 0.001% of that volume. So it's not really going to be harmful to them at all. So how do we get that message out? And I thought that was a really interesting question because I, my belief is once the, the thought is out there, it's really hard to kind of turn that around. So I actually 
um, flipped it and said, why don't you, and I said, I don't think that that's something that's going to be easy to do. Um, What could be easier um, as an ingredient manufacturer is coming up with an alternative ingredient that would perform the same functionality of the ingredient you're talking about, but is free of these things. And she seemed very receptive to it. And I always wonder if they actually did it. But um, I think really that's how the industry needs to look at things right now, because there is a whole list of bad for you ingredients that's out there. And that list changes and grows every year. So that sounds like it's a really interesting marketing tactic for brands. How can they kind of leverage that and use that to their advantage while also being transparent and authentic? So being clean is different than transparency. Um, And I think that transparency is so important today. Um, And it's not easy to do. It's the way things are. It's almost like navigating a minefield. Um, And this is where authenticity is critical um, in communicating anything about your brand, any of the values you want to put out there, inclusivity, gender fluidity, um, sustainability, all of those words. um, You need to make sure that when you go back and look at, you know, I'm a retailer, I'm a brand. Is that part of my purpose? Is that part of my DNA? Because if you don't, do that and it comes across as inauthentic, you're going to have a consumer that's going to call you out on that and show it to the world. Um, I found research that said half of consumers will automatically unfollow a brand that does something they don't like. And close to 30% are going to block or boycott the brand entirely. So that really kind of leaves it at very high stakes. You add fuel to the fire when you think about the social media Um, pages that are exposing the ugly underbelly of the industry. So when you think about some of these pages, we call it extreme transparency because it really pushes the boundaries of truth and TMI. Um, But consumers are eager to drink the tea, quote unquote. Some of these pages are called, um, I believe, tea pages. Um, They're eager to drink the tea that's being served to them. So using Estee Laundry as an example, Um, less than six months ago, this Instagram page had 5,000 followers. Today, that number is close to 60,000. If it continues to grow at that rate, you're going to see over a million subscribers by the end of the year. So not to say it's going to grow at that rate, but obviously the consumer interest is there. And by having this exposure to what's happening in the industry, we're seeing a lot of really big impacts um, that you may not necessarily expect. So what's an example of that, would you say? So I think one example of that, and it's not necessarily just these social media pages. Um, You could call out some digital native brands that do this with price transparency, for example. So they break down the cost of components in beauty and put it out there to the consumer. And when you think about that, they're actually exposing the markups that the industry is putting out there to the consumer. So how does this impact what's happening, for example, in prestige? What we found is when you look at weekly data as an example, the biggest spikes in unit sales come from when we're seeing retailer promotions take place. And we know that 33% of consumers um, wait for a promotion or a gift 
um, a free gift with purchase before they make um, a purchase for makeup, as an example. But here's what's really interesting is that while that 33% of consumers hasn't changed over time, that's been the case for the last couple of studies we've done, what's really interesting is that the younger consumer, so this is the consumer that is born online, that is more likely to purchase these digital native brands, therefore more likely to be exposed to these brands that are you know, posting this extreme, trans, um, this, sorry, the brands that are posting this price transparency. When you look at the younger consumer, that number of 33% jumps up to 40%. So the younger consumer is definitely much more likely to wait for a sale or a discount. And we're seeing that play out within the makeup category, for example, where you're seeing a greater percentage of sales um, being sold at a discount across all of the different categories in makeup. So the way, one of the ways that we're seeing the industry kind of react to this is by, um, in different ways. So showcasing value through different things. In makeup specifically, minis are huge. So while last year the makeup category was relatively flat, minis grew by 27%. And they really represented a large majority of why the category grew at all. Um, So the consumer seeing value there. Uh, Palettes are also um, really big and, you know, continue to be a strong driver of the market, as well as um, new launches in makeup we've seen we're doing really well. And we're also seeing makeup gift sets um, doing very well. So it seems like within makeup, at least, all of the things that you just mentioned were very, you know, promo driven, very um, affordable, accessible options, not one off products. How do you think that brands are responding to that overall as this category is kind of downturning? So I wouldn't say that the category is necessarily downturning. I think that there's a lot of opportunity in makeup, actually, because um, one of the things that we found from a consumer study is that the number of the percentage of consumers using makeup today is 67%. And that's an increase of six points, actually, versus the last time we did the study. So that translates into nine million more women wearing makeup. Um, so when you talk about the challenges that we're seeing and the slowdown in the market, it really is around the more traditional channels. And I think it's being led by this more fragmented marketplace. Like you said earlier, the consumer can purchase beauty anywhere. Um, and many times brand will, brands will enter the um, beauty market through makeup. It's um, an easy category to, to get into and, and, and pull a collection together that's really exciting for the consumer. And so when you have that much fragmentation and you have that many options and then you add to the fact that there's so many more women wearing makeup today, so where is that volume going? It's just, you know, we're seeing a softness within the traditional channels. Like you said, in the past, you can go to Dwayne Reed or CVS or Walgreens or Walmart, Target, or any of the department stores. Um, all of those channels are, are feeling um, a softening um, in the makeup category. And we anticipate that 2019 will continue to struggle with the category. But despite that, we do believe that there will continue to be areas of growth um, within makeup, specifically in the areas we talked about. What about something like hair? 
prestige hair has seen somewhat of an uptick recently. And it's being driven by like these kind of like natural, clean um, brands that are not over skewed, which is what we've kind of seen historically. Tell us a little bit about that. So I think not over skewing is huge. Um, and it really ties back to all the options. And I think, you know, when you look at some of these younger brands, even outside of hair, I'm talking in total beauty, um, skincare is an area where you can see um, way too many SKUs within a collection um, or, you know, makeup potentially as well. But what's interesting is that, you know, brands that don't have as many SKUs tend to perform better than brands that have too many. Again, it goes back to the whole concept of too many options for the consumer can lead to consumer confusion and fatigue. In hair specifically, um, what has been growing really is just the um, success of these salon brands that have been entering the prestige marketplace and expanding distribution in a big way. Um, So we're able to see how Some of these brands are digital natives. Some of them are salon-born. Some of them are very trendy. They might be used by the Kardashians. I keep bringing them up, but (laughs) it's the Kardashian effect is alive and well and very real in the world of beauty. Um, But you know, we do see some of them are natural or position themselves that way. With hair, it really is about having that efficacy and having that credibility um, within the prestige channel. Interestingly, when you look at hair performance in mass, where hair is very heavily penetrated, it's a much bigger category in mass, it's soft. So again, it's easy to grow when you're smaller. Larissa, on that note, what are we seeing in fragrance? Are we going to expect to see it rebound? And is that going to be led by designers or brands? Yes. So it remains to be seen whether excitement in fragrance is going to carry over into 2019. One of the areas that we see consistently do well every year are artisanal brands, and they will remain solid performers, but the bottom line, they're still a very, very small segment of the, brand, of the market. Designer fragrances are fueled by flankers. So flankers is an industry term that we use to describe a brand extension. So for example, um, Chanel Chance, um, has the flankers of Chance Eau Fraiche and Chance Eau Tendre, for example. Oh, my God, am I butchering it with my French? But anyway, what we found was that flankers are actually driving gains. So when you look at the non-flankers or the original brands, these fragrances make up a larger share of the sales. They're about 75% of the market, but they were flat. Flankers, which make up the remaining 25%, grew by double digits. So those offshoots. Those offshoots, the brand extensions, they grew by double digits, 20% last year. So flat versus 20%. So flankers are really driving the market. You can see this just by looking at the top launches alone. The top launch in 2018 was Aqua de Joe Absolute Homme. The number two launch was Coco Mademoiselle Intense. These were both flankers. Um, we're also able to look at designer fragrances by country of origin. Um, so when we look at the market this way and slice it in that direction, we found that European fragrances are actually fueling the growth of designer, growing by about 9%. American designer fragrances are declining by 2 So, Larissa, I have to ask, how do you think that ingredients like CBD and adaptogens, especially CBD, though, are going to affect beauty in 2019? 
So you did see adaptogens and healing crystals and CBD really emerge as the breakout stars in 2018. And there's definitely a lot more white space to be filled. Um, But what's interesting about CBD is according to a recent survey by Civic Science, which is an NPD partner, close to 70% of consumers have never heard of or are not interested in CBD products. So that said, the buzz is incredible thinking about that. You know, Google reported 7 million searches for CBD globally last year, which was a sharp increase over the year before. Um, So when you think about CBD, I think there's a lot of things to consider. You don't want to overpromise. You definitely, because if you do that, you're going to end up in a situation where the consumer um, is not going to purchase any more of these products if you're overpromising on what it's going to deliver. Um, But that's the case with any of these hot ingredients. But that said, you see CBD everywhere. Um, I think adaptogens are another thing that we're going to see more of. But what's interesting is that while they're trending, they're not new. Uh, They've been around and they've been using beauty products before. But with the consumer interest now so hyper-focused on these peripheral benefits, um, we're seeing that brands are making it a point to market this particular ingredient that may have already been in their formula, um, but they're marketing it out to the consumer in a bigger way. So, Larissa, we're seeing that um, bigger retailers like the Sephora's and Ulta's of the world are really trying to dabble in CBD. How do you think that that is going to affect the education and obviously the sales of the ingredient large for these brands? So I believe any time that a retailer, um, especially multiple retailers, have a push behind a certain trend, um, this just happens to be an ingredient, but behind any kind of trend, you do see the consumer um, has more education and then can learn more about it and then um, consider um, using the product or the ingredient or the trend. Um, But, you know, when you think about that stat that I shared with you, it's still relatively new. And I think that's why it's an untapped opportunity, because um, when you think about that big number of consumers that just have never even, like, don't even think about it, it seems unusual. But you're thinking about, we're talking about the whole country at large. Um, You know, in the areas where we live, you know, New York and San Francisco and L.A., these are the hottest um, and beauty markets. And it's where the consumer has the most engagement in beauty across every category. Um, When you look at these markets, they represent 25% of total sales for Prestige Beauty in the entire country, just those three cities. So, you know, when you think about how that number seems so big, but it really, it's a number that represents the total country. And when you think about, you know, the environments that we're in, we see it a lot. It may not be as obvious um, when you when you look outside of these key markets. It was great having you today, Larissa. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Priya. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. A special thanks to Gianna Cappadona, the producer of this podcast. As a thank you for listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast, we're passing along a limited time introductory offer on a three-month subscription of Glossy Plus. Glossy Plus members have access to unlimited content, exclusive research, and more. Join today for just $49. That's 80% off by entering the code INTRO at checkout. For more information, head to glossy.co slash subscribe. We'll talk to you next week.